them, after that kind of launching, you just want to go into the Word. And I was thinking that there's no better passage to go to this morning with that kind of song introduction than Colossians chapter 1, because I want to exalt Jesus Christ, and this is one of the premier passages in all of Scripture, to exalt Christ, to see a vision of Christ where he is glorious and profound and beautiful and high and exalted. And I want to do that. I want to do that through Scripture, my heart to your heart, Colossians chapter 1. Let me read these verses, verses 15 through 20, that exalt the living Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Does this passage speak to you? I mean, this is a passage that has already, just by reading it, exalted the living Christ. This is the kind of passage that you read and you almost are ready to say, okay, amen, and let's just meditate. Because I, it just lifts me into glory with this vision of Jesus Christ. As believers, the Holy Spirit has shown us that this is Jesus. Now, I have a concern. I have a concern that in our culture and throughout our churches, because so many people talk about knowing Jesus, that there are many people who talk as if they know Jesus, but they don't know this Jesus. 77% of our culture, according to some surveys, say that they believe Jesus was here, and they thus believe in Jesus in one form or another. Fewer people say that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but nevertheless say, hey, I know, you know, of some kind of Jesus. There is the sort of social gospel Jesus. There is the philosopher Jesus that people affirm. The Jesus, you know, he was a great teacher and a great leader amongst many religions. There's a lot of different Jesuses out there. There's the Depeche Mode Jesus of the 80s, the your own personal Jesus Jesus. You know, these sort of you know, Jesus is my friend and he gives me a warm fuzzy inside Jesus. There's the Jesus that people confuse with politics, right? Now I've got your attention. It's the Jesus where, uh, as one person put it, who wrote in a book called Jesus Made in America, he says, listen, you know, it's like riding an airplane. You look out the left side of the window and you look out on the left wing and there's Jesus out on the left wing doing social justice things. Or you look out the right side of the airplane on the right wing and you see Jesus out on the right wing, the political Jesus of the right wing, where you take responsibility for yourself. 
There's a lot of Jesuses out there, but let me just say it this way. If you don't have the Jesus of Scripture, you don't have Jesus at all. And the Word of God explains to us who Jesus is. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and shows us in a revelation of God by faith who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4 says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And so our mission... And our goal and our desire is to believe in this Jesus of Scripture, to exalt this Jesus, and to proclaim the one true and living Jesus Christ to the world. So it's just important that we get Jesus right. Uh, it, our probable you know, Republican candidate for president is Mitt Romney, and he is affirming Jesus. But is it the true Jesus? No, because... He's proclaiming Jesus through the Mormon faith, and the Mormons believe that Jesus was a created being and the brother of Lucifer. Now, I'm not trying to dog Mitt Romney this morning, but I'm just trying to say we have to be clear on who Jesus is these days and stand for him from Scripture, no matter what political candidates say Jesus is. Clarifying Jesus is the difference between people's eternal destinies. It, it's the difference between having a church that is exalting the true Christ or not Christ at all. Even if you say you're a Jesus believer, you have to believe in the Jesus from Scripture. That's what Jesus said to, to Peter. He says, you know, and the, the apostles, who do you say that I am? Let's just let's take a moment and clarify this for a few moments. And Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, recognizing that that was an expression by faith, said, you are blessed, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly father did. That's the dynamic that we should have by faith in our hearts. As we look at a passage like this from Scripture. And so, do you have the right Christ? That's my question this morning to us. Let's affirm the true Christ in five ways. Number one, let's affirm that Jesus Christ is eternal. Find this with me in verse 15 of chapter 1. For he is the image of the invisible God. Image here means it comes from the original word icon. It means a representation of. He is, Jesus is a picture of God. In other words, Jesus displayed to us in flesh God because Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal God. Let me put it this way. Jesus is uncreated. So to see Jesus is to see the uncreated eternal God. And we see him by faith, but the apostles and the followers of Christ saw him physically. Remember when he went up to Philip and Philip sort of said, you know, Jesus, we've sort of been with you. Show us the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long that I've got to clarify this to you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Jesus is the one true God. He's the second person in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that is one God, three persons, co-eternal and co-essential. 
the one true and living God. Uh, saving faith always affirms this, by the way. You can't kind of affirm that Jesus is God and be genuinely exercising saving faith. Saving faith affirms that Jesus is God, the uncreated eternal God. That's why Jesus, when he said to the Pharisees who were about to kill him, before Abraham was, he took the name of Yahweh, he said, I am. He's the self-existent one. He's eternal. When he forgave people, the Pharisees said, only God can forgive. That's right. Jesus was saying, I am God. And genuine saving faith that's believing in the true Jesus believes Jesus is God, the image of God. Hebrews chapter, chapter uh, 1, just look over here quickly with me. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Here it is, the exact imprint of his nature. That's the same idea as Colossians 1, the image of God. He's the imprint. He's the visible demonstration of God because he is eternal God. He prayed in John 17, give me the glory that I once shared before with you in all of eternity once he raises from the dead. He is eternal God. You know, thinking of this word image, the image of God, it reminds me of this story that I used to hear from an elder I served unto and, uh, under in my past church and past pastorate. And he used to talk about, he was an aged guy at the time, he's gone to be with the Lord. He talked about how he served his country during World War II as a medical doctor for the army, and he was stationed in Saudi Arabia. And so before he went, overseas, like many service men and women do, um, his wife was with child. And so he went overseas and she's with child and he was there for two or three years. And so the baby was born and he wanted that child to know him. And so, you know, there wasn't real modern technology back then and probably not a way for his picture to be taken. So he actually had a Saudi Arabian artist, probably in some tent in the desert, um, paint a portrait of him in uniform. And I remember seeing this picture. It was hung up over their couch. And anyway, it was a beautiful picture, and he sent it home. And then after the war, he came home, and his daughter didn't connect the dots and was wondering, who's this stranger in my house? You know, and he would come to breakfast and sit at the table. And there was this one day when his daughter, who was two or three years old, at the breakfast table was looking at Dad over the newspaper kind of looking at him and looking at the picture and looking at him, looking at the picture, and then said, that man there is my daddy. And she looked at him, looked at the picture, looked at him, and all of a sudden her eyes brightened and she saw him for who he is as her dad. And she jumped into his lap and said, you are my daddy. And I'll tell you, that is sort of a picture of what happens to us as we look at Christ in Scripture as we explore his majesty, who he said he was, what he did, how he expressed himself, his teachings. We look at Christ and we look at our picture of God from scripture. We look at Christ, we look at the picture of God from scripture. And suddenly the spirit of God connects the dots in our hearts and we say, Christ, you are Lord, you are eternal God. That's saving faith. And that's what Paul was concerned to express here to the church at Colossae. This is an 
early church, New Testament church, that was sort of needing clarification even back in these days about who Jesus really is. They were struggling. There were false teachers that were saying that, you know, Jesus is more of a a manifestation of God. He's kind of a rung on the ladder to climb to God, but he's not really God. Because if Jesus came in the flesh, then, you know, his, his physical body, um, that would have been sinful. Because we believe everything physical is sinful. And so, you know, you can't have a Jesus who really had a body. And so, and so Jesus is sort of this angelic manifestation that came here to show us God. And so from that, they were into all kinds of weird, um, false religion. Uh, Colossians 2, verses 21 says, you know, that they were into do not handle, do not taste, do not touch type legalism. And Colossians 2, 23 says they were into self-made religion and asceticism. Sort of legalism, cult-like legalism was being promoted to this church. And to clarify and to straighten them out, Paul says, look, no, no, let me give you a true vision of the living God. Fully God and fully man, exalted at the right hand of the Father. First of all, he is eternal God. And secondly, to have the right Christ, you've got to have a Christ who is creator of all things. Verses 15 through 17. In other words, he's uncreated. He's the uncreated God. Look at this, the firstborn of all creation. This word firstborn can be tricky. It's what the, um, the old heretic from the 300s, Arian of, Arius of Alexander, promoted. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe from this word that Christ was the first created being. That's how they sort of promote that false teaching. But firstborn doesn't always mean the first that's created or even the firstborn son in a family. Firstborn, prototokos, means that you are the inheritor of all things. You're the heir of all things. You own it all. It means that the blessing in a family is given to a rightful heir. For instance, when you had Jacob and Esau, and look, you know I know twins, right? I've got a couple of those. I've got a Jacob and an Esau in my household. Anyway, Esau was born first, and Jacob was coming out as the heel grabber, grabbing Esau's heel. But as you know in the story, Esau forfeited his blessing and Jacob became the rightful heir. It was just what was pronounced on Jacob. It was what was pronounced on Solomon. He wasn't David's first son, but he was the king. He was the heir. Israel wasn't the first nation in the world, but it was the heir or the firstborn nation. You can find this throughout the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 says that Israel is the firstborn nation. Psalm 89 27 speaks of Christ in the Old Testament. Firstborn is sort of code word language for Messiah. In other words, the uncreated Messiah is the heir or owner of all things. How do we know that? Because he's creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. Now, Paul would be very confused and confusing if he was saying, look, Jesus was created as firstborn, and then in verse 16, he created everything. In other words, that would be completely illogical. In other words, the reason Christ owns it all is because he made it all, right? Jesus owns everything. Do you think Jesus can fix your life and your issues and your problems that you're bearing today? 
You know why he can fix it all? Because he made you. He created you. There's the old sort of story of a, a print shop, a sort of a premier company in North America, in the United States, that um, was contracted to send a printing press. This would have been like 100 or more years ago. Send a printing press down to a company in South America. And when the printing press came, it, you know, some assembly was required, so they tried to put it together for their company down there. And it didn't work. It kept glitching. So they kind of got together as their higher-ups in their company, and they wired word back to America and the States and that company saying, look, can you send a representative down from your company to fix this thing? So they sent the best guy that they knew to send down there to fix the printing press. And when the guy showed up, he was pretty young and looked pretty wet behind the ears. So the company down in South America said, okay, we've got to wire back and get somebody who can really fix this printing press. So they wire back and say, can you send somebody else, somebody with some more experience to fix our printing press? The company in the U.S. wired this back. They said, listen, the guy that we sent you made and invented this printing press. He can fix the printing press. And I think so often we get confused, right? We, we talk about Jesus. We sort of check in with Jesus on Sunday mornings. We sing about Jesus. But do we embrace that Jesus created us and that he cares for us and that he can fix our issues in our life, the things that we're going through? We can cast all our cares upon the creator, the one who made us and sustains us. Why did he create all things? Look at this in verse 16. Four prepositions sort of bounce off the page. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This sort of through and for language, you can find it in 1 Corinthians 9. Ver, or 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Hebrews 1, verse 2. You can find it in Romans chapter 11, speaking of how all creation has a purpose, a design. Yes, I know the world is corrupted by sin. Man made in the image of God is, is sinful. And so to, the, the image of God is skewed as we look at man. But you know what? There's glory that's coming out through all of humanity. There's glory that comes out through all of creation as we look at the Chugach Range, as we look at the Alaskan Range, as you look at the Kenai River, as you look at the eagles flying over. Can you tell that we did a little touring yesterday? The glory of God is on display through all that we see because God created it to do that. It's from Him and then it bounces back to Him to magnify Him. Believers do that. They look at creation and they go, well, that is beautiful in and of itself, but God is beautiful as the creator of that. That's what faith does. And it was all created to give him glory. He's the creator of all things. And he's not only the creator. Look at verse 17. He's the sustainer. This is still under the point that Christ is creator, but he is the sustainer. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we had majesty here from the Master's College. Let me talk about Liberty University a little bit. I went there in 1990, and one of my first uh, classes I had, first semester there, was biology. And uh, the teacher that I had, that um, my brother who's sitting over here and sister-in-law um, sitting over here, we all had, is Dr. Spawn. What a name for a biology teacher, by the way. 
Dr. Spawn, I mean, was that just sort of in the plan, you know, Dr. Spawn, now you're going to be a biology teacher. But the great thing about him was not just his biological mind, because he was brilliant, but his faith and his affection for Christ. Because one of the first lectures that he gave, which is one of the lectures that really made a deep impression on me, and one of the only things I remember at this point, is his um, explanation of the atom, where you have protons, neutrons, and electrons, and all of that is um, sort of swirling in the atom. But what he was saying is, look, you've got protons that are positively charged, and you have neutrons that are neutral. And so scientists, on an atomic level, really can't explain how atoms ultimately, when you, when you will everything down, how they stick together in and of themselves and with each other, with each other because... According to the law of magnetism, where you would have a positive charge, you need a negative charge for things to stick, right? You ever take two magnetic, you know, things that are magnetized and they either stick or they repel from each other. And so scientists are ultimately, if they're honest, perplexed as to how atoms stick together. And Dr. Spawn, at the end of his lecture, would come out, you know, to the class and he would say, look... Those scientists don't know how atoms stick together. They don't know why atoms don't fly apart and we don't have some sort of atom atomic explosions. But I do from scripture. It's Christ that holds all things together and you know, his lip would quiver and he would get into it. And you know what? It's true. It's true. I, I sort of read a more you know, scientific explanation that I won't bore you with, but ultimately scientists don't understand ultimately how all things cohere how things are you know connected how how it's all sustained how we're you know in proximity to the sun where we have an atmosphere and we don't sort of melt by being too close to the sun we don't freeze except you know during winters in Alaska we don't freeze because we're not too far from the sun but you know we we enjoy this homeostasis environment because Christ set it up that way He's the one that does it. Is that your Jesus? Do you believe Jesus gives you life? He gives you breath and gives you joy and he gives you sustenance every day of your life? That's who Jesus is. That's the true Jesus. When you sort of think of the interplanetary system and not only God sustaining things on a micro level but on a macro level. You think of the planets and our sun that could hold a million earths. I mean, that's pretty large, and God's bigger than that. And then you think of the largest planet that we sort of know and, and see. It's Betelgeuse, I think is what it's called. It's, the, it's the, the shoulder of Orion. It's the third brightest red star. This star, if this was sort of set in our solar system, it would, it would swallow up half of it. That's how large this star is. It would go out beyond Jupiter. From the sun. It's amazing. And God is bigger than all of that. He named all the stars. He holds it all together. And then he designed for a people to live on earth. And guess what? He moves from creation to a specific love in the church in our text here. Look at verse 18. Christ is eternal. Christ is creator. And Christ is head of the church. Look at verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. I just want to pick up on this last phrase in verse 18 first. In everything, Christ would be preeminent. Let's sort of work our way backwards into verse 18. What's everything? What does Paul mean when he says everything? You know what everything is? All of his creation. That's category one. And then the next category, maybe even a more important category, is the church. What does God care about? He cares about creation that gives him glory and the church and his bride. The universal church is what's mentioned here at the beginning of verse 18. The body, all the believers of all days, of all ages, the invisible universal church, the bride of Christ the one for whom he laid down his life. He's called the head, the kephale. He's the originator of the church. He promised he would build it. He made that promise to Peter and he's building his church and he died for the church and he sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 to fill and energize his people, the church. So as important as creation is that we enjoy and see that displays the glory of God equally if not more important to the heart of God in Christ is the church for whom he died. Very significant. It's important just to explain here when you speak of the universal church you know what the clearest expression of the universal church is according to scripture? A local church. A local church. Christ is the head of the universal church, and specifically, he is the head of gospel churches, true churches. He's the head. Revelation chapter 1 talks about how he moves in and amongst his lampstands, and each of those lampstands are explained in Revelation 2 as local churches in regions. Christ is the head of our church and when you have a church and you want to express a universal church you do it biblically you have elders you have deacons you have a preacher you have teachers you have baptism you have the lord's supper you have church discipline these are the marks of the church and first and second timothy and titus says do church this way why because it's a window picture into the glorious universal church that's why we want to do church biblically it's a little teaser for staying after in the business meeting I might not be as revved up, but hey, we'll have pizza. It'll be good. The church. The church for whom Christ died. Look at this, verse 18. The firstborn from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first to be raised from the dead, but he is the firstborn, meaning the most significant one to be raised from the dead. That's how you interpret prototokos here. He is the preeminent one. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, if Christ be not risen... We're to be pitied because we're still in our sins. But Christ indeed is risen from the dead. He rose Lazarus before he raised from the dead. But he indeed rose from the dead as God, very God. Vindicating that our sins are forgiven. Number four, Christ is eternal. Christ is creator. Christ is the head of the church. And four, Christ is God. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not believing in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 warns the church 
not to have another Jesus. Again, there's a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus, but if you press them and say, is he the living, eternal, creator, uncreated, sustainer, glorious, head of the church, Jesus? Is he that Jesus? People might scratch their heads a little bit. Is he Lord? Is he the one way to heaven, Jesus? That's the true Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's why we're here, is to magnify that one true Jesus. Who is God? The fullness of God. In other words, all of the full attributes of God dwell in Christ. Jesus existed eternally, co-eternally, in the fellowship of the Trinity as the one true God from all of eternity, but came 2,000 years ago, fully man and fully God, God incarnate. And that's who Paul is extolling and talking about here. Jesus Christ, where the fullness of God is there. And God, he says, was pleased that the fullness of his attributes dwelt in Christ. You think God the Father would be pleased for all of his eternal, glorious God attributes to dwell in somebody who was lesser than God? Would God the Father be pleased with that? No, that would be irrational. God the Father smiles upon his son Christ, who is God. That's what Paul is saying. Affirms that Jesus is God. God the Father is pleased that Jesus is God. That all of his glorious, God-affirming attributes dwell or are at home in Christ. That's Jesus. That's our Lord and you either have that Lord or you don't have a true Jesus at all. You either have a right Jesus and a right saving gospel or you have a wrong Jesus and you have an unsaving gospel. 1 John chapter 4 says we're to test the teachings, the spirits, the false teachings. You're going to have a lot of teachings out there that are almost Jesus teachings. You say, well, it's not rank heresy. It's not over the top. This person is still a good person. Well, people are great because they're made in the image of God and we love people and we respect people of different religions. We want to build them up, but we cannot affirm their false teaching. And First John says there's going to be a lot of antichrist out there. Second Corinthians 11, it talks about how Satan comes as an angel of light, right? We have to be very careful to be precise and specific with who Jesus is. We don't want to die on every hill and every religious or even theological debate, but this is one we want to die for, our Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth it. He's our everything. He's why we do what we do. Number five, and this is why, because Christ is Savior. He's eternal. He's creator, he's head of the church, he's God, and he's savior. This is sort of the culminating point in the text. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ is savior because Jesus is God Jesus, as God, can take care of your sin dilemma. If you don't have a Jesus who is God, then you don't have a being who is a worthy sacrifice to appease the wrath of God on your behalf. We needed God to come save us. It's like in the, when the Titanic was going down, there were several lifeboats that were out there, and 
people were debating in lifeboats. I read this this week. People were debating in lifeboats whether or not to paddle back towards the wreckage that was going down, the burning, massive ship, and they were fear-struck that they had survived the Titanic sinking, and so they're in the lifeboat, but there were hundreds of people, victims in the cold, icy water who were dying, crying out, and you had captains of those lifeboats saying, hey, we need to get man the oars and go back and save those people. And then you had other boats where they were compelling the captains and saying, look, turn the ship around, the boat around. We've got to get people in our lifeboat because we're only 80% full. Aren't we thankful that we don't have to rely on humanity to save our souls? We're fickle. Jesus is not. As God, he is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to reconcile your sin dilemma with a holy God. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. He's the only bridge. He's the only lifeline to get us to glory. Don't you want to get Jesus right so you can fully grasp and understand the gospel? Getting Jesus right, it changes everything for how you live and how you think about your life, your day-to-day, how you invest things, how you invest time, how you invest your life. It's for this true, living Christ who is God. That's who we serve. Through him to reconcile or make things right to himself, all things. What are the all things here? Look at this again. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. First of all, Romans 8, it talks about how the creation groans to be made right. Uh, there's sort of this personification of our world that's rumbling and shaking. You know, we have earthquakes to sort of demonstrate, you know, how things rock and roll here sometimes. You know, things are sort of moving around and there's tornadoes and hurricanes and, and calamities that happen in this world. It's a sin-cursed world. It's dominated by the philosophies of Satan, sin, sickness, and death. But guess what? This world is still our Father's world. He made it, and we enjoy it. It's a beautiful place to be. People walking around this planet, this terra firma, made in the image of God, and we see the beauty of Christ through unbelievers and believers, most significantly through believers. And one day, God will, according to 2 Peter, burn this place over and recreate it as the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. John saw the new heavens and the new earth coming, the heavens coming down to this earth. And this is our Father's world. And we will reign with Christ for a thousand years because he will reconcile it. And that came through the cross. That promise that this place is going to be made right comes through the cross. But guess what? What is maybe more important to Christ's heart is the fact that he not only reconciles this creation, but he reconciles the church by the blood of the cross. Do you revel in that? Do you meditate on that? Do you think about the fact that Jesus died to make you clean and right before him? When you sin and you believe that you have sinned beyond the affection and beyond the love of God, you've sort of taken yourself out of the pale, it's so important to come back to the exalted living Christ who's way above and beyond you to see that he is truly the one and only hope who can solve our sin dilemmas. 
the angst, the guilt, the pain, the anguish when we sin. And yet Christ covers it all in his once-for-all sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to put his stamp of approval that our sin debt is taken care of. For those who believe genuinely in this Christ, you have this treasure that is beyond measure for the glory of God. This is our Savior. You have the right Jesus, you have the right gospel. If you have the wrong Jesus, then you don't have the gospel at all. You know, a way that I think I've sort of come to understand the deity of Christ is to compare Jesus to everything that the scripture says to be true about God. When you do that, then you come up with Jesus who is God. This might be a helpful way to do it. It's using sort of a word device um, with the first letter of the word hands. Hands. First letter, H. All of the honors that are given to God are also given to Jesus Christ. For instance, 1 Peter 4.11, To him belong glory and honor. Songs that are sung about God are also sung about Christ. A, attributes. Attributes due to God are also due and given to Christ. Remember when Jesus said this and his promise to the disciples? Where he said, look, go make disciples. For guess what? I'll be with you always even until the end of the age. His, he's omnipresent. He's with us. He's everywhere. The names of God are given to Christ. Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am Lord. And before Abraham was, I am. He's God. And then deeds, H-A-N-D, deeds due to God are also shared with Christ. Christ in the boat, he says, hush and be still to the wind and the waves. And he commands creation. He's the resurrection and the life. Jesus rose people from the dead and he forgave sins, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus is God. And then the last letter is S, a little bit forced in this analogy, but hands. So you have seat. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of God. He's at the right hand of the Father, but if you read Revelation 4 and 5, you have seated the lion and the lamb on the throne of God. God is worshipped, and Jesus is God. Well, let's just take a few moments for application. You know, having the true Christ in your heart, as you fill your heart up with passages and principles about Jesus... It should necessarily change you, and it should change your days. It should change your conversations. It should change your priorities. It should change your relationships. It should change everything about you, because that's what it means to be a Christian. And it's so important to, again and again, regrip who it is that we worship from Scripture. It's not just a one-time deal where you get Christ right, and you get saved, and then you sort of forget about things. You have to sort of swim upstream against the cultural Jesuses and find the Jesus of Scripture and regrip and regrasp who he is and who he is in your life. Number one, saving faith is the conviction born and sealed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is God, very God. What I mean by that is just 2 Corinthians chapter 4. True Christians have the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ happen in their hearts. 
True light, true saving faith happens. And when that happens for true, true, genuine believers, it means that a genuine believer is affirming that Jesus is God. If you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it about 20 or 30 times, Jesus is God. And that happens only through saving faith. And so if somebody is kind of almost believing in Jesus or sort of tripping up on that, it's important to work with a person, to talk about Jesus Christ as God and watch sort of things connect. As one preacher put it, you know, when you evangelize, it's like putting coins in a machine. And you sort of talk about Jesus, you talk about the Lord, talk about your love for him, and the change doesn't always drop. But then the Spirit of God comes along and, and all the pennies and, you know, nickels and dimes and quarters drop. And people, it's like faith is happening. And all of a sudden they go, you know what? I never saw this before, but you're right. Jesus is God. And that's saving faith, you see? So it's important for us to get it right so we can help others along the way. Number two, what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as first place in everything pertaining to you? And I just put this list out here to just stimulate your thinking. The reason Paul extols Christ or describes Christ in this way in Colossians 1 is to give a life-dominating picture of Christ. Christ is to dominate every area, like our families. So we talk to our kids. We should speak of Christ. As we get frustrated and we want to say the wrong thing, Christ is firstborn of all creation. He can fix this. He can help me. He can guide what I'm about to say. You, you think about Christ being preeminent first. And then you speak to your family, you speak to your spouse, as you invest, as you spend money on things in your home, you should do it with Christ in mind. This vision should precede decisions, conversations, your job. It's hard to work in a secular environment, isn't it? It's hard to be out there and to be a witness. But let me just ask you this, and you should ask yourself this. Is there at all an aroma of Christ on me as I enter into the workplace? There should be. Should you fit in? Should you connect? Yes, you should have relationships. You shouldn't preach every time you talk to people. But is there any sense of an aroma of Christ on you is a good question. And you get that aroma from getting in the text and letting passages like these inflame you about Jesus Christ. Does he dominate your mind, your time, your loves, your conversations? your pleasures, your recreation. See, dominate that. You say, I, you know, I'm trying to check out when I recreate, right? Well, when you think of the word recreation, we want to be recreated, right, spiritually by encountering Christ. And so as you recreate, do it with a Christ-first mentality. Entertainment, choices, and in your worship. As we've worshiped the Lord through uh, singing, through meditation, through giving, through sharing, through the gifts of our ministry, um, through listening to the word of God, are you worshiping the true Christ? I hope so. If not, let me just call you to submit and bow your knee to this Jesus Christ, the Christ of Scripture. If God is opening your heart right now, which perhaps he is, I hear of people who are responding to the word of God these days, whose hearts are being opened, who are coming to faith in the true and living Christ, then yield and submit to that spiritual work that could be happening in your heart right now. Believe on Jesus Christ. Bow to him. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's my heart. That's all of our hearts. And our hope is in Christ alone, this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time and the word of God for this meditation in scripture.
I pray, God, that, Lord, you would save people, that you would bring people to faith in Christ, into the real relationship with the true and living God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for a paragraph like this in Colossians that can open our vision up to who you are. God, forgive us for listening to the culture when it describes Jesus in a lesser way. And Lord, let the vision of Scripture triumph over all other lesser versions of false Christs. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.